Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Outspoken with White and Jordan. 100% engagement. It's a total disrespect. Download, stand well back, listen. Jim White and Simon Jordan. I don't see that view. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. I'm Jim White, and today myself and Simon discussed the reported £215 million offer from Al Itihad for Mo Salah. Should Liverpool accept? Jordan Henderson breaks his silence on why he chose Saudi Arabia. We examine his comments. Plus, former Arsenal forward and TalkSport pundit Perry Groves opens up about struggles with alcohol and mental health. This is Outspoken with White and Jordan. Now then, let's get to it. Mo Salah doesn't go away, does it? After rejecting a deadline day offer, would it make no sense whatsoever for Liverpool to entertain any further offers with the English window now closed? Um, Reports overnight, Simon, claim that Liverpool are set to be offered an improved bid of 215 million quid for Salah by Al Etihad. TalkSport Saudi reporter is Ben Jacobs and he can tell us more on this. Is this really coming down the pipe? Is this on the way, Ben? £215 million offer? Good morning. Good morning. I think the Salah story, as you say, has not gone away. What I can tell you is that Al Etihad representatives are in London. Both clubs at the moment, sources close to them, deny that any formal bid was tabled last night. But we know that Al Etihad planned to try again. And as I've said many times, we have to understand whether that's for optics or they think they've got a genuine chance of success. And some of that will come down to whether or not there comes a point where Mo Salah says to Liverpool, listen, that money's too good to turn down for you and I want to go. If a bid is tabled, I think we have to be very wary as well about this number, 215 million. And the reason I say that is because my understanding is that there'll be a very healthy guaranteed fee should a formal offer be tabled. And then the add-ons will take it either lowest end, 175 million, highest end, around about that 200 million mark. But some of those add-ons are related to winning the Club World Cup. So it's very easy for Al Itihad to inflate the overall package to create this giant number. But if Liverpool were to seriously entertain it, then they would want to be sure that they're going to get the vast proportion of the package, not just the guaranteed fee. I mean, Simon, you're taking Ben, say with us, you're taking it last week was if this gets to crazy money, and it already was last week yeah. when Sam Atavis joined us, then it's going to be, be hard for Liverpool ultimately to say no and that he could well be on his way. Do you, do you still stand by that? I mean, if oh, this yeah, kind this of dough comes in. This is not a case of if, it's a case of when. So whether it's in this window or whether it's in the January window, whether it's next summer... What is interesting, and I, I have this mantra, that the more the deal is played out in the public domain, whether it's the buying of a football club or the transfer of a player 
and this kind of detail that finds its way in to the media, the less I become inclined to believe in the in the intermediate or real time it's going to happen because we seem to be being briefed in by by uh, by whoever's briefing us in, whether it's the Saudis or people associated with them or people that are getting information by by, by stealth. Uh, and we seem to be privy to the transaction before even the football club that owns the players' registration is privy to it. So when you get into this territory of add-ons and 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 and, and significant monies up front, yeah, most Salah will go to this particular football club or to this particular part of the world. Whether he goes in this window, it, it, again, it makes no sense to me. Unless I made the point on, fr- on Friday about conspiring, there would if you wanted to do this deal and you were keen to do it as a Saudi Arabian football club, why would you not give Liverpool an opportunity to facilitate the problem that this deal would have created? Because if you give Liverpool an opportunity to facilitate the solution to that, then maybe you'd have got the deal done. So you come to the end of the transfer window, you don't make a bid until the very day or the day before the transfer window's closing. How do you help Liverpool pull a lever which enables you to get the player out? That makes no sense. That's why I think it's posturing at this moment in time but I do think a deal will get done inevitably at some point. And of course, Simon, as we know here, the window's now closed in this country, Ben, but not so in Saudi. Uh, it's Thursday for that. Ben, here's the thing, though. Klopp confirmed after the Villa game at the weekend that he and Salah have never even had a conversation about the player leaving the club. Let's listen to him. He didn't tell me, but he didn't have to. He speaks with training performances, with behaviour. We had meetings this week, and the meeting were not about what we did in the past. It was about what we will do in the future. Uh, Mo had was with the players committee and Mo had his moments where, where, where he was talking and there was nothing about <laughs> by the way it's only until next week or whatever and then my future he's completely here he's completely here and if Dom said that fine Mo doesn't have to come in my office and tell me by the way boss I go but for me for me it was not a subject for one second to be honest so off the back of that Ben Jacobs one would find it hard to believe that Liverpool would then perform what perceivably, would be the biggest of all U-turns and sell them. Exactly that. And I think the fan base would feel they're being very unambitious and be worried because they can't bring in a replacement. They didn't get Champions League last season. They're trying to get it again. Salah's importance that sell him in 2024. You're still probably going to get over 100 million if there's a desire from the Saudi deal makers to still sign the player. So Liverpool's stance has been clear. It's been public. It's been bullish. It's been dismissive even. But It's just a very unique type of deal, which always leaves that 1% of doubt. Fulham said very publicly to begin with, Alexander Mitrovic wasn't for sale. He forced the move. I think that's the difference here, that Salah's not going to do that. And if the player doesn't push, then Liverpool can stick to their position. There may come a point where Klopp thinks one thing, Salah should stay, and FSG think another, because the money becomes too good to turn down. But I don't think we're there yet. And I think if we were going to get to that point, as Simon suggested, it would have come earlier in the window because to get this deal done, you need an amicable relationship with Liverpool. And to come to them when the European window is shut is perhaps now, for whatever the amount is, not the right time to actually get the deal done. Ben, can I ask you the principles of why the Saudis would operate this way? Because it doesn't make any sense. I'm not suggesting they should follow conventional wisdom and fall in line with the historic way of doing deals. But if you're trying to extricate one of the jewels in the crown of an iconic legacy football club in England, and albeit the economics will make a decision for them when it gets to a certain scale, why would you do it at the last moment to give that football club, as I've made uh, an observation already, a position where they've got no choice in terms of an ability to replace. Is this Saudi arrogance? Is it Saudi naivety? 
What, what is it? I don't think it's naivety. The people doing the deals are highly experienced in European football. Well, clearly and, not. Well, I think you've got Michael. Who, who, does, who does deals on the last day of a transfer window at that scale with an iconic footballer that's going to have no ability to replace him? Who would do business that way and really legitimately expect an outcome? Maybe they don't expect an outcome of getting Salah. Maybe they expect an outcome of making headlines, as you suggested. Yeah. You can look both ways. But I think the point here is on the Saudi strategy, the target was 2024 for Salah. So this isn't last minute because they've left it to the last minute. It's last minute because they've decided, hang on a minute, our 2024 target might just might be available in 2023. Maybe we can get him for the Club World Cup. And the reason why they've moved is because they've got some kind of encouragement from Mo Salah's camp that he wants to go eventually, but maybe still not now. But so they didn't even table trying. a bid, Ben. I mean, they had indicated, we all knew when the rumours started circulating at the beginning of August that there was Saudi interest because there was a question of his agent and there was a pushback. So we knew that the interest was there was then. So they didn't even table a bid. Well, I think the other thing to say they're tabling a bid is it's complicated. You can't just do it overnight. It's not like a traditional football club where if you decide you're going to make a bid, you do it quickly and, as you say, decisively to allow Liverpool time in the market to replace. Al-Itihad may decide they want to make the bid and then they have to do two things. One, clear out because their foreign quota is full to get the funding from the Ministry of Sport, which you might think is quick and obvious because everyone wants Salah, but they've already spent on Benzema. They've spent big money paying the wages of N'Golo Kante. So there's a process whereby the club up to the Ministry of Sport via PIF all have to work together. And that's not an overnight thing, especially not at this magnitude. So I think that's one aspect, but I agree with you. The other aspect in all of this is maybe they don't mind if they fail because this push for Salah is genuinely just about having us talk about it, putting optics in a position where the Saudi Pro League is making the back pages yeah. of all around the world. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Remaining on the subject of Saudi Arabia, uh, bear with us. Jordan Henderson, of course, uh, no longer with Liverpool, now playing for Stephen Gerrard's Al Etifak, but Henderson on England duty. He's been speaking to The Athletic uh, for the first time since he's moved to Saudi Arabia. And uh, on, on, on the move, why Saudi says, well, people will see this, uh, this club come with loads of money uh, and he's just gone, yeah, I'm going. When in reality, he says, that just wasn't the case at all. People can believe me or not, but in my life and my career, money has never been a motivation, ever. Don't get me wrong, when you move, the business deal has to be tight, and money's part of that. But it wasn't the sole reason. So he's ruling that out, Simon. I mean, he even says, and he laughs at figures of 700 grand a week being banded about. He says, no, the numbers are not true. I wish it was, and he laughs at that. I mean... Will people accept his reasoning on that part, do you think? Should he be bothered? Well, I mean, he was the one that people attributed a lot of the noise around his support of certain communities. Mm. Um, and, and I, you know, I have no issue with his support of certain communities if he wants to follow through with the consequences or the, 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 the real... Uh, um, uh, skin in the game sort of mentality that I've often accused footballers of not having they, they parachute into these particular causes they don't have a lot of understanding behind them they tell you what they think they, that you want to hear and then when they have some consequences as a result of it they don't like it I liked the, uh, the the armband in Qatar and then quickly taking it off when they realise they're going to get a yellow card. Unfortunately in life, if you want to support something, sometimes there is a consequence for that, but they don't want it. Now, he suffers from that particular backlash because he was very vociferous. Look, it's ridiculous for him to say in all 
straight-faced perspective that he hasn't gone to Saudi predominantly for the money. I don't care if he's gone for the money or not, but the bottom line is, is that's what he's gone there for, in the same way that Phil Mickelson went to pay on the Live Tour for the money and then started to give us this old, load of old pony about diversity and inclusion and, and bringing forward a society um, that was, um, in certain ways, not where it needed to be. With all those things in mind... Jordan Henderson cannot get past the inevitable. I mean, I would much prefer him turn around and say uh, one of the driving factors was the money. Or well, he doesn't do it, that. And of course, and, that, and that's disingenuous. And what people will look at it and go, don't be so bloody stupid. You're an international footballer. You're playing for Liverpool. You're going to a, a league that has enormous amounts of money attached to it. Which well, says very, money's part of it, but it wasn't the sole reason. Is that not good well, enough? Well, can we? Okay, then. So, what are the so what are the predominant other reasons then? He wants to grow the league. I'll oh, get to he? that in a second. Oh, okay. On the LGBTQ situation, I mean, he, he has spoken up for their rights in the past. He does, and of has, course, yeah. we, And we know what Saudi's take on that is. He says, it was a difficult time, definitely. Don't get me wrong, there can be a lot of criticism, a lot of negativity around me as a person, and that was difficult to take. But I just feel as though, because I do care about different causes that I've been involved in and different communities, I do care. And for people to criticise and say that I turned my back on them really hurt me. Well, again, I don't dispute the fact that Prima Facie, veneer deep, I'm sure he does care. But the reality of caring and then suffering a consequence in terms of su suggesting that I'm not going to go to particular environments is not what he's prepared to do. I don't blame him for going there for an inordinate amount of money at whatever age he is. Mm. Because at the end of the day, that's what footballers are there for, is to enjoy their careers. At this stage in his career, if someone's foolhardy enough to pay him five or four, five, six, seven hundred thousand pounds a week or whatever he's getting... Then that's on them, but let's 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 not dress it up into what it isn't. It's predominantly a money transaction. It's not the same accusation that I made of Kieran Trippier, and I still maintain that if there wasn't a significant amount of money, he wouldn't have gone and signed for Newcastle if Mike Ashley was in control. He went to sign for Newcastle when there was a new ownership model that was ultimately going to kick the club on and give him benefits. Well, he's but, he's asked. Look, what persuaded you then, Jordan? What persuaded you? So what what's your take on this? So I go somewhere to try something new to grow the game that I love in another country and grow the league into one of the best in the world. That excites me because I want to grow the sport all over the world. And that got me going, really. Well, I think that's a very well thought through answer and chapeau to his PR team. Because when you're preparing yourself for these interviews, knowing what's coming your way, what is your, what is your outcome in terms of people are saying, you hypocrite, you made a song and dance about wanting to be supportive of certain communities and you go to a country that has no support for these communities whatsoever. You're a mercenary. You're only going there for money. So what you develop, if I was in his shoes and the people around him, what is going to be our best answer to this question? Because we're caught in a cleft position. Yeah, but he I'd... himself has verbalised it to the athletic reporters. Well, of course, he's been briefed. Yeah, but he's the PR team's being... not sitting on his shoulder. No, but they briefed him. He's a parrot, I would imagine. They sat there going, well, how do I dress this up into something slightly more meaningful than the real implications behind it? Why have I gone to Saudi? I've had potential opportunities to stay in the English Premier League. I still would have been paying a king's fortune over there. I'm going to Saudi, which has got now 6,000 fans, in a country that's not the most hospitable to the communities that I purport to support. Let me think how I get myself out of this particular conundrum. I know I'll build up a narrative with those around me that these contributing factors, which in part might form a very small part of the consideration. Let's ask the question, Jordan. Jordan, if you were getting the same dough that you were getting in Liverpool, would you have been equally as motivated to go to these countries to grow the sport? No, he wouldn't. Is he allowed to take his LGBTQ beliefs with him to Saudi? There's a question. He says, I think people know what my views and values were before I left and still do now. And I think having someone with those views and values in Saudi Arabia 
is only a positive thing. Fantastic. If I mean, so I, what we want to I, do I, now I, is hear him I, trot I, out I, that. I, I question, what he said before about LGBTQ, but say it in Saudi. I often question the validity of people's purported beliefs when it comes at a cost to them. When there is a cost implication to someone's deep-seated beliefs, then you see the substance and the character of the person when ultimately they're prepared to accept those costs. Well, let's see if Jordan Henderson feels the necessity to lecture those in Saudi Arabia about the Western standards that he feels are not being uh, exhibited in the country where he's taking their money. And we'll see how that plays out. And we'll see if he feels necessity. Not that I feel that he should do. I don't think he should have to have. I don't think he should have to run around in rainbow laces. I don't think he should have to make speeches on behalf of, 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 of groups that need representation via people like Jordan Henderson. I think he should concentrate on being a bleeding footballer. And the reasons why he's, he's caught himself in a situation where people are saying, uh, "Excuse me," is because he wanted to make a four-act play about his beliefs. And no, there's I, an element of diplomacy in the answers here. Well, well, of course he's been diplomatic. Well, of course he is, because he can't go over there and say, he can't say to the British media, I couldn't give a pony about all this. I've gone over there for a big bag of money because everyone would go, you hypocrite. He can't then turn around and say say, say that I'm not going to be prepared to say something because those communities, he's caught in a position that his hypocrisy to some extent, and by the way, a hypocrisy that 95% of people would have been caught in, the only difference is, like Gareth Southgate, is now finding himself in a difficult position where he felt the necessity to put himself in front of the media telling everybody what he thought no, about... But you, can't, you can't argue that he doesn't address the LGBTQ question. He says, my intention was never ever to hurt anyone. My intention has always been to help causes of community where I felt okay. like they have asked for my help. We can bid our, our, so our heads in the sand. So Nothing's going to change. So, so, which would you think? His views haven't changed. Which would you think are more meaningful, actions or words? Because words are easy, right? So, the actions would have been: I don't agree with this society. I'm not going to condone the inv- advancement of it for football. By not going. By not going. No, no, no. That comes at a cost, Jordan. You see, what's going to happen there, Jordan? Is you're going to throw away fifteen million? Throw away fifteen million quid? Oh no, no, I'm going to grow the league, and I'm going to do it as Agent Henderson inside Saudi Arabia by changing the mindset of their belief system, of their belief culture, of their of their Sharia law, and look at everything because I'm going to do that because I want to go over there, and I'll and actually I'll do it for nothing. And I'll so, do it for the same sort of money as I was getting in, in England because that's how committed I am. It's a load of old rubbish. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. I think I've told you now and again, Simon, like, uh, I'm so many years now sober. In yes. fact, uh, late October, I will be... 12, 12 years yeah, yeah. Uh, of alcohol and I, I'm looking forward to, to that date 28th of the month because it's a date that stands out obviously in my calendar uh, and am I pleased that I will be yes uh, do I address the, the situation on a daily basis pretty much so yeah do I go on with it yes and I do it because it makes me feel good and it makes me in general a better citizen of the globe so 12 years and I'm looking forward to it October the 28th. Um, many people will know this gentleman who's joined us here live this lunchtime. Perry Groves, of course, who used to uh, be on with myself, Bob Mills. We used to love Perry and Perry's still a regular on Talk Sport. Perry, of course, 250 plus games for the Arsenal. He's a double league title winner. He played alongside the likes of Tony Adams, Ian Wright, Paul Merson and Arsenal fans love him I know that for a fact because uh, they speak to me still regularly about Perry's contribution to the football club but Perry in recent times it's fair to say has had his own challenges in life and Perry I'm delighted to tell you live on TalkSport this lunchtime live on YouTube and Facebook is going to share some information regards those challenges that was maybe a build up that you thought I would never give you but I have given you, and I'm proud to give it. I'm proud that you're here. I'm proud you're with this man and myself. What have you been through? Um, I, do you know what? I, I have to say that I never thought that it happened to me. I never thought that I would have the complete mental and physical breakdown that I had. And I've fought long and hard about it. Um, You've said you're 12 years um, randomly um, on the AI. I'm seven months uh, sober today. And today? Yeah, and I, I, think, Congratulations. I think it's the... I'm 58 now. I think it's the, the biggest achievement I've ever had because I, I fought long and hard about coming on. And the reason I've come on is, is if, if, if it helps one person out there who listens to this, my story, and they reach out for help because um, that's what I did... Uh, because, as I said, I was completely shot mentally and physically, had a massive breakdown. Uh, I was in denial. I didn't, for a million years, think it was anything to do with alcohol. Um, and then when I did, I was lucky enough to go into Sporting Chance, um, Tony Adams, obviously, rehab centre that he started in 2000. Then I realised that I had uh, a severe drink problem. And um, I am an alcoholic and I'm not ashamed to admit it because now I've been made more aware of what it is. It's actually a disease. It's a disease in your mind, whether you're uh, an, uh, a drug addict, whether you're a gambling addict or any addiction you have, uh, alcoholism, it, it's your brain that you don't work the same way as what a normal person does. And because I didn't drink every day, in a million years, I didn't think I had a drink problem. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I was looking at other people and the perception of alcoholics normally is, is someone that obviously drinks every day or you see someone on a park bench, you know, and they're so drinking. So what was your so drinking pattern? Then? It was um, binge drinking. So um, it was a, a mask and a reward. 
And that goes back, obviously, to my football career, where there was a massive, obviously, drinking culture. And then that carried on when I finished playing football when I was 30. And I was always looking forward to having a drink. But then when I knew I was having a drink, I couldn't have just like three or four. It would always be... And people, if they left the pub after three or four, that was a sign, oh, where are you going? You're, what's the matter with you? You've got yeah, to get home. Yeah, you're a bit yeah. weak. But, uh, the real men stay out and they drink all the way mm. through. And then it was the some of the carnage and mayhem that I was causing as well in uh, my personal life and people around me, um, having what they call alcoholic blackouts. Now, I thought that a blackout was obviously that you was uncon- you drunk and you was unconscious. And it, but what it was, I'd wake up the next day or next morning and have no recollection or memory of what had happened for probably two or three hours the evening before. Sure. And then, what did, what did I say? What did what I, I do? do? Who did I upset? You know, who was I unbelievably aggressive to? Who was I rude to? And that foreboding feeling in the pit of your stomach, where you're you're aware that you might have done something, and then you get the disapproving looks and the nods in people's eyes, and then you know who you've upset to, and you have to go and say sorry to, and you do say sorry, and you do mean it, but then the way your alcoholic brain thinks is well, I've said sorry, I've done my men's, I'm all right now. And then that pattern just carries on and carries on. Yeah. Was it, there one major trigger moment, Perry? I, the nervous breakdown, I think it was a build-up of, of time where, um, quite rightly, my um, wife Joe has said that uh, this can't go on. This can't, we, we can't go on living like this. We can't go on. Um, I say it wasn't all the time. It would be sort of intimate, but then it got more regular. And um, then I had different uh, issues going on. And I always thought that I was mentally strong because everybody used to come to me with their problems. And they go, well, oh, Grover's just thought that out. He knows how to do it. He doesn't worry about it too much. But that is because the drink was the mask and then the reward. You know, I, I thought I was being the consummate professional because I would never, ever would drink before I was going to work or I was going on air. But then I knew that if I was working for three or four days on the trot, I knew that I'd be going out on that fifth day and it'd be an excuse. Yes. It wouldn't be lunch. You know, I'm going out for lunch with my lovely lunch with my wife and then I'd have four or five, six pints of Meriti. That wouldn't be enough. Then, then she'd go home and I'd go to the pub and then, again, I wouldn't remember what sort of mood I was in. I was happy. Was I was, you know, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And, and of course you were in a tough school, weren't you, when you, when you played? Because you'd be sitting down and drinking with people like Tony Adams. Now sober, with Paul Merson. Now sober, yeah. But then it was a whole different story. Yeah, but then it was what almost hap- normalised. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, what happens is you socialise and drink with people who think and act like you do. Yeah. So if anything happens to you through your drinking and you tell other people stories, they all top trump you. They go, "Oh, tell you what, Grave, you don't worry about that. I can remember the time when I was this and that." And I just go back. I've got to be perfectly honest. Like in nineteen ninety nine. I got uh, done for drink driving and I could have gone to prison because it was that bad. I was three and a half times over, right? So I went to the magistrate's court and they said, right, we're going to send him for custodial reports, which is whether you get a sentence or whether you do community service. So my previous good character stood me in good stead because I did community service. I did 130 hours, got a 28-month ban. And I was so close and I was really, really, you know, frightened and the first thing I did 
is after the court cases, go and meet my mates in the pub and drink and then tell them what had happened. And they would go, oh, tell you what, Groves, you did that. But I remember the time I got done for drunk driving yeah. and I nearly smashed it back for a police yeah. car. Do you know what I mean? So it's a safe behaviour, no- isn't it? It normalises yeah. it. And, yeah. and I, that carried on. Um, and I would stop drinking because people would say that alcoholics can't stop themselves drinking. So a period of time, I'd go two weeks and go and prove to myself that I didn't have a drink problem. Or I'd have a couple of pints for it and go home to prove to myself that I haven't got a drink problem. But if you're doing that to prove to yourself you've got drink, you haven't got one, you have. And I had a complete breakdown. Um, and I was working for on talks with Talksport on the uh, Wolves Liverpool game last year, and I was criticising myself in my head even when I was on air, thinking I've made a mistake, I've missed something, I've overcashified, yeah. got up on the Sunday morning, and I could not function. I was, I, I couldn't function physically. I couldn't function mentally. I was completely shot. You were I was, done. I was a, sh- a complete shell. I had no answers. I had nothing. I had nothing. And I was uh, due to go on air on the Sunday session. And in my head, I think you can go on air. You're going to like mess up. You can say the wrong thing. You're going to, you know, um, forget your words. You know. And I just couldn't. Do it. I, I, I was nothing. I had nothing left. Thought I was no good to anybody. Did you go on air? No. I couldn't do it. No, I, I had to phone up and say and talk to what we're understanding. Um, and then I reached out. And the reason I've come on air is because no matter how bad, if someone's out there, and I've had mental health problems as well, which we'll talk about later, but mm-hmm. no matter how bad you think the situation is or how desperate you feel, there is help. If you talk to somebody and you reach out, there is help. It doesn't matter yes. how bad you think the situation is. So if you, uh, you can reach out, to, whether it's Samaritans, whether you think you've got addiction, you can go AA meetings. It's all around the country. You just walk in there. Yeah, NHS were brilliant with me as well. There's help there for anybody. And um, if, I, if I didn't go in yeah. and was lucky enough to go into Sporting Chance for rehab for 28 days, I, I've, I don't know. I, I don't think I'll be here. I, I generally think that they, they saved my life because I, had no, I was going nowhere. I had nothing. And it's recognising it, Perry, isn't it? It's recognising it, getting the right help, because as you rightly say, Perry, the help is out there. And many people this lunchtime, unbelievable response in the last 15 or so minutes whilst Perry has been on with Simon and myself. The number of messages coming in. Sam, Manchester City fan, well done, Perry. Seven months, one day at a time. Uh, I'm also in the fellowship. There's no place better for me to be I know that rock bottom feeling. Uh, hello, gents. I'm listening to Perry. It could, it could be me he's talking about. Perry, hats off. Well done. Well done, Perry, says Peter in Liverpool, for admitting you have a problem and starting your journey. I'm now 35 years sober, says Peter. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Arsenal legend Perry Groves is in studio with Simon and myself. Dan the cabbie has recognised that. Love Perry. Speaking honestly, this lunchtime top guy, one of the best on talk sport, he sure is. But Perry has been uh, revealing to us all that, like myself, in days gone by, uh, Perry has discovered that he's got a, a, a big problem with alcohol and has decided that's it, no more 
for me. Now, more from Perry in a second. If you're concerned about your drinking or someone else's, uh, a good first step is to see a GP. They're able to discuss the services and treatments available, as well as the NHS. There are a number of charities and support groups across the UK that provide support and advice for people with an alcohol problem. For example, you might want to contact Drinkline, National Alcohol Helpline, on 0300 123 110 or Alcoholics Anonymous helpline on 0800 9177 650. Those numbers are important. I'll give them again. You can you can take them down. Many people are, are saying this lunchtime, Perry, that your words are resonating with them listening this lunchtime. And Simon, briefly, I know you've been listening very closely to what Perry has been saying. And I know not regards yourself mm. but you've encountered individuals in your yeah. life who yeah. have had uh, challenges oh, oh, such as this oh absolutely I mean we have a strange relationship with alcohol in this country when you go to other parts of the world like America where I've lived for years and Spain they don't have quite the same relationship they all look at the Brits with a strange sort of attitude of our drinking culture but I think it takes uh, an innate bravery to talk about these things there's no weakness in finding flaws in your character and finding yourself in difficult situations it's about how you address them you might have to reach a certain point they always say don't they you can't bounce unless you've reached the bottom and so to, to get to that point is always the most challenging part and I've seen it and I've seen there's, there's a difference between heavy drinking and alcoholism there's a vast difference I would put myself at one point in my life as a heavy drinker um, but I've watched also people in my personal life that have been alcoholics and it is a very very a uh, disconcerting watch and a very disconcerting spectacle at times. But notwithstanding that, there is a way through it and there's lots of support mechanisms in place. And Perry's speaking about it in the same way that other people have spoken about challenges, whether it be Brian McDermott yeah. and his challenges. And yeah. I found his story and his uh, his uh, version of it in terms of his imposter syndrome a remarkable story. And that people always associate sportsmen with great strength because it takes great strength to be a sportsman. Um, and when sportsmen talk about it, it actually has more resonance because people associate that strength of a sportsman to be a sportsman, to be an icon, to be a hero in people's minds. And then you show the flaws that we've all got in our lives and you turn them into strengths. We've talked about the, the help that is out there, Perry. Can you talk us through now the help that you've received? What did you do? Just on the help as well, you know, all the lines are great, you know, the helplines, whatever, but even if it's alcoholism, whether it's drug addiction, whether it's gambling addiction, cocaine addiction, whatever it is, even if you just talk to some, just talk to somebody, do you know what I mean? Just, just talk and it'll make you feel better and that person might, you might not be able to do it yourself, that person might be able to help you and I, my, Joseph, my wife, who I love like, un, like so deeply, she was the one um, that reached out to Sporting Chance and I was lucky enough to get into the rehab facility and then when I came, I didn't, I was in denial when I was in Sporting Chance. I was still in denial that I'd, I'd, I, I went to two AA meetings basically to placate, placate my family, do you know what I mean? Say, look, I'm trying to do something about this and I sat there and they say, when you first go in, you look at the differences and not the similarities and I was listening to them and I think, I ain't got a problem, I'm nowhere near as bad as what you are. You're having a laugh, you, you lost your house, you, your marriage, crushing, I'm not nowhere near as bad as you. And then when you start listening to similarities, you think, well, I'm, exact, I'm exactly the same. And I was in denial when I went in. Even when I went in, I thought, I was in, you said imposter syndrome, Si, there. Mm. I thought I was going to be an imposter in the rehab because I didn't think I had as big a problem as what everybody else was in there. And then I did my first step of the 12 steps of um, AA, and it's how your life has become unmanageable when you're powerless over alcohol, and you write everything down that's been bad and how bad you've been in your life, everything was to do with alcohol, mm. every single thing. And then you just think, 
wow, I, I have, I'm an alcoholic. And that's, the, the, that's when you admit yourself, you, know, you have to admit yourself, and it, it did take me a while. And when I was in there, I got unbelievable help um, from all the counsellor there, Marcia and Baz and whatever you work. People think you're going in there and it's, you're going to like a health farm or whatever. You're not, you're, you're up at seven, you're doing uh, physical exercise because that helps endorphins in your brain to give you know, positivity. And then you have your counselling and you go to AA meetings, you have your one-on-one, you do your 12 steps and you, you're, you go to about nine o'clock at night. And it's all about your, you know, your, your recovery, mentally and physically. And then when you come to the 20, I thought it would be the longest 28 days of my life. And it was the shortest because I was frightened to go out into the big, wide world. I was, fr- I was so exposed and vulnerable. And when I came out, I wasn't functioning properly. And that's when I started to, ha- I had really deep, dark thoughts that I still wasn't going to be any use to anybody. Well, out there in the big, bad world. In the big, bad world, mm. yeah. I'd say, call it the wide world now because obviously yeah, yeah. they empty part. yeah. And I'd really, I'd suicidal thoughts. Um, I was thinking how I could, how I could do it, but I couldn't make it look like suicide because if it was suicide, this is the, how your, your insanity of your brain takes over. And I thought I'd always control my brain and I had no control over it at all. And I was thinking, well, I can't make it look like suicide because my life insurance won't get paid out. I've got to make it look like it's an accident. So... And I had to admit to, to Jose about my thoughts and what I was thinking of doing and trying to do. And she uh, phoned uh, NHS, what unbelievable. She phoned 111. They sent responders around and assessed me and took me up to Culture General Hospital to the mental health crisis unit and got assessed. And they were absolutely incredible. They, they saved my life as well because it was touch and go whether they kept me in a facility uh, and they decided that um, I could have help. But they come around uh, every day. It was twice a day for the first two weeks just to make sure I was okay, just to talk to them and, and go through how I was feeling and what I was doing and uh, medication as well. Because I, I always thought that, again medication was mean that you couldn't handle it yourself and it was weak but it isn't because there's times in your life that you need help you need medication and you feel so much better when you get that help absolutely and again when you talk you feel like that you're not on your own and you're not alone and my generation definitely it comes from obviously my dad and mum and that, that generation is, you never talked about your problems. It was like, don't come to me. You, you, I'm not going to be there to sort out your problems when you're older. You know, you talk about them. And if someone asks if you're okay, everybody always goes, yeah, I'm fine, thanks, really. I'm all right. But you might not be. Sure. And, you, and you've got to be honest. You've got to be honest with people and just say, well, actually, I'm struggling a little bit. And as soon as you talk to someone, mm. you feel better and you feel like, obviously, you're going to get that, that help. And... um say the, the mental health crisis team from the NHS were incredible. That's why, um, again, the mental health side of it, I didn't think that would be me. Of course. I thought I could, I thought I could solve everything. You can't recognise it. Now you recognise it. I, um, it. Yeah, and it's recognising that I, I can't do it. I couldn't do it on my own. I needed that help. I needed help from um, 
you know, mental health crisis team and them advising me how I do it and how I'm sort of managing myself and managing my thought processes and yeah. over catastrophizing yes. about everything because I didn't have those thought processes before because the drink was either a mask or a reward. So now I'm out there and having these vulnerable and you feel exposed mm. um, and basically it's, it's actually normal life. It's it's just life, and it's how you you're learning to deal with it. Yeah. And um, hey, we're gonna, we're going to go to the twelve thirty break. I'll, I'll tell you this: this gives you an idea. This fella, Simon, a couple of people in here that we work with. This place is huge. This building. Uh, a couple of people I know in here had a couple of non-alcohol related issues. Both of them have said to me in recent days. I tell you, phone me out the blue to see how I'm doing. Perry Groves, that's you through and through, isn't it? But I've had I've I've helped. It's the same thing. And they say in AA, don't pick up a drink, pick up the phone, or you know, or text someone. And the AA meetings are lifesavers as well because then you're with like-minded people and you share in there. So I do probably four or five AA meetings a week. And you've just got to, if you if you reach out, that is the first step. Download, stand well back, listen. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back tomorrow to bring you the best of the show. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.